Good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, Yeah, so Sarah Nell and I have been looking at intercession lately and thinking about what it means, and I love um, a definition that we've been using. I don't even remember where we saw it, but anyway, it's being with God on behalf of the world, and I think presence with God and just holding the burdens up um, before the Lord when we don't know how to pray is such a sweet way to think about what it looks like to um, intercede. So anyhow, thank you for that, Amy. And it's good to be here. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm Karen Guess. I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you. Last week, Amy finished preaching Philippians, and we've been considering the call to live in Christ and to let Jesus' self-giving pattern of love inform us um, on how we trust and how we love. And I was encouraged to find that the gospel text today actually takes us back to that same place. So I'm looking forward to looking at it with you together. So would you join me in the hearing of the gospel? This is Matthew 22, 34 through 46. I never know if it's glasses or not glasses. Um, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we come to you this morning eager to hear from you. And so I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word to our hearts and in that, that we would find ourselves um, maybe even more alive when we leave here than when we came, that we would live our life um, in your pattern and by your power. And I pray this in Jesus' kind and powerful name. Amen. So our passage today has these back-to-back interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I think it's easy to assume that the backdrop of this story is that the Pharisees are bad, and Jesus is the outnumbered one under fire, and obviously the good guy. And we tend to hear this story then in a black and white way. Um, And Jesus, we're very excited, he wins twice. Like he scores these two final points. And you're like, yes. Um, So how many people like to cheer for the underdog? Yes, I do. Um, 
I'm guessing there are a lot of football people in the room. I am not a football person. I did celebrate when Georgia Tech beat Miami because my son goes to Georgia Tech, and I thought that was fun. Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) I'm a politics person, so that means that in college, I would sit in my room and watch C-SPAN and be lonely because everybody else was watching football, and I wondered where they all were. Um, But in political primaries, I pretty much always vote for the least electable candidate because when I watch a debate... I love the underdog, and I get excited about the way they have passion, and they're so convinced they can change the world, and then I vote for them, and I have never voted for anyone who's ever won a primary. So we love underdogs. We can be really hard on their opponents. Um, It's just the way we're wired. But I think that urge can cost us a little bit when we come to this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, because we kind of then read it in a typecast way, and we read ourselves right out of the narrative because it's sometimes easy to, like, identify somebody in the crowd or maybe think of ourselves as a disciple, but we don't sit in the seat of the Pharisees for very long, um, and we probably are not Jesus. So um, today, as we come to this passage, which does center them, I invite you and me to set aside our stereotypes and to try to enter in with some compassion Because if we can be friends with them today, I think we can learn from them. And so today I'm naming Befriend a Pharisee Sunday. Welcome to church. Um, So it's a, this passage is a two-way interrogation. Pharisees ask a question and then Jesus does. But it also holds for us two invitations. The first invitation is to remember who we are. And the second invitation is to discover how God is coming for us. So, to enhance our empathy for the Pharisees, let's consider for a minute even the helpfulness of the desire that's hidden in their first question when they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? We come to this particular passage, this scene, and it's Tuesday, actually, it's not Sunday. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. Two days ago in the story, Jesus entered the, um, Jerusalem on a donkey. Yesterday in the story, Jesus cleansed the temple. And today he's back in the temple, and he's telling parables, and he's answering questions. So the heat is pretty turned up. The Pharisees ask the question, which command is greatest? And they do mean to test him. They're trying to expose him in front of the people. Um, but they are the temple people, the temple agents in a temple state. They're actually the ones in their hearts, for sure, I think, trying to help people stay in step with God, to live as the religious minority in a Roman colony, and to survive. We know the Jewish people are in covenant relationship with God, and so their work, the Pharisees' work, is to help their community uphold their end of the bargain, to hold on to what God has given them, And to do that inside of a political situation, that's pretty threatening. So, in some ways, their work is helpful. Their attention to order comes from their urge to protect and to uphold helpful things. The worship of God in God's temple, among God's people, in a God-given land, under threat. So they protect and uphold their orienting things. And so do we. As people, it does matter that we are oriented 
it matters that we have a sense that our lives are rooted in good things and pointed in a direction that's durable, especially when we're under threat. We become reliant on the structure of our orienting things. This is a very silly example, but when I was thinking about like what orients me, I thought about my morning routine. My coffee, my devotions, my wordle, my mini, my connections. Thank you, New York Times. So those are orienting things. Um, we all have stuff like that. It may be something deeper, maybe an urge to achieve, uh, a tendency to detach. It could be perhaps the urge to clean. That's also me. I love C-SPAN and cleaning. I am so fun to hang out with. Um, <laughs> but sometimes when we attach to these things, it, we start to think that they're protecting us rather than like we're, we're trying to hold on to something good. They're actually holding on to us. And we get threatened when they're disrupted. Like when I go on vacation and there's no space for me to have my morning routine, I feel legitimately disrupted. And I, you probably can relate to something silly but also true in your life. So for the Pharisees here, there's so much more than just like coffee at stake. Um, for them, the orienting thing is God's law. And they really want to uphold and protect it in the face of what they perceive to be the threat that Jesus is posing to their system. Because if he creates enough disturbance, their way of life can be obliterated by Rome. The temple is destroyed 70 years later. It's not just, you know, in their minds. Not to mention that Jesus has been stirring people up, asking them to envision God and life in God's kingdom pretty differently as he's moved through their world. So they are trying to prove that Jesus is unqualified, that he's dangerous. And they ask the question, they're trying to hold on to their ability to hold on to their sense of the blessing, of the presence of God in their midst. And this is human. It's what we do. Our desire to wrestle down the blessing. It's so much a part of their story that you don't have to look any further than the name Israel to understand how much God actually gets this part of being human. We all struggle with God to get and to hold on to the blessing that is ours. Do you remember Jacob in the Bible, the forefather? He was blessed by God before he was born. That was like predetermined, already communicated. The blessing was his. But he spent his life struggling to lay hold of it. He did it on his way out of the womb. He grabbed his brother's ankle. He did it by deceiving his father. He did it by betraying his brother. And he was still struggling for the blessing when he wrestled all night long with the angel. And that way of being, wrestling for what is already ours, is so acceptable to God, so known to God, and so much a part of what it means to actually interact with God that God named his people Israel, which literally means to struggle with God. Um, so the big point in that, I think, is that God wants us to struggle with him. To struggle is human, and the invitation as being one of God's people is to struggle with God. Um, so Jesus, although he gets pretty feisty with the Pharisees in the next chapter, doesn't seem to actually be mad at them here. He's just answering them, and he reminds them in his answer of the blessing that they're struggling for. 
because he responds to their question with an invitation to remember who they are, to remember that the blessing is actually already theirs. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's quoting a prayer from Deuteronomy called the Shema that the Pharisees actually would already be praying twice a day. So they're very familiar with these words. I kind of like Hebrew words. I think they're fun, partly because to me they invite a lot of imagination. I know there's something about um, the richness of the color that they invite me into that I just think they're fun. So there are three Hebrew words in the Deuteronomy prayer. Heart, soul, and strength. Lev for heart, nefesh for soul, and meod for strength. You do not have to know them. (laughs) But I want to tell you about them because I think there's an invitation in them. It's the depth of the invitation to love God. The word for heart, love, is not just what we would think of like our emotions. It's also our will. So it's the whole thing that moves us forward into life, our emotions and our will. And the word for soul, nefesh, is actually um, kind of like our, our primitive animal self. And it's also in, used as a word in Hebrew for throat. So it's interesting to think about our soul as like everything that passes through here, like our thirst, our hunger, our breath, all of this stuff. And the word for strength, me'od, means muchness. Like, I like to think of it like this, like anything you do this about in your life, like I'm really, I'm a lot this. That is what God wants us to bring to him and love him with. So it's more than just like, you know, our our heart, our soul, and our strength. It's like your whole being is called into loving God. The command, though, has to have a subtext because this kind of wholehearted love is only possible in relationship. It's not a list of things that we do. Um, We love as we experience love. We only love as well as we have been loved. We only love as well as we've been loved, which is why 90% of us probably are in or should be in therapy (laughs) because We need to learn how to love. And God bless our children. My son is here. Um, (laughs) God, our parent, does love us wholeheartedly. God loves us wholly and perfectly. God made us in love. God made us by love. And God made us for love. His love invites our whole selves When our thirst is quenched by God's love, when our desires are met in God's love, when our emotions are soothed and stirred by God's love, when our muchness is celebrated by God's love, when our mind is enlivened by God's love, that is how we can then move out into the world loving God and loving our neighbor and even loving ourselves, which is the hardest part sometimes. This is where we become fully human, capable of love, to love ourselves graciously and love other people freely. 
It's the fruit of being in a wholehearted relationship with God, and that is the blessing. It's not the things we've held on to that we think have it somewhere in there. But do you wrestle? Do you work to apprehend what is already yours because of your urge to uphold something or protect something that feels more real and possible than surrendering to love? I do. I bet we all do. I think it's the work of our life. I remember a season of really deep wrestling for me. Um, God used it to call me into a deeper space of love, but he didn't answer my questions or even really uphold my orienting things. In my late 20s, I went through a divorce, and it was a season of intense pain, deep questioning, fear, loss. I had a lot to uphold. There was even more at stake. And I spent hours and years struggling with God, watching something precious slip away, knowing that I couldn't stop it in the face of my own and others' brokenness or efforts. It was hard. And in that time, my questions came to Jesus fast and furious. I would go to bed with questions. I would wake up in the night with questions. I would wake up the next morning with questions. Do you have struggles that grip you like this, that won't let you go, that send you to bed and wake you up with things? And I won't tell you that the struggle resolved neatly, but I will tell you that what Jesus did here in this passage with the Pharisees also was true for me. And that was he kept calling me back to relationship, kept inviting me to trust him more than I trusted the orienting things that I thought would save my life. I recall that season a little bit like this picture. Slowly, over time, I realized that every question I threw, every pebble of fear, insecurity, doubt, even holy desire that I threw at God landed in the water of God's love. I wanted answers, but as my questions fell, I kept encountering God's love. And it wasn't always in a comfortable way, but it was in ways that asked me to be open to being loved, and to loving in my disoriented place. Having my pebbles of struggles received into that pool of love was humbling and gracious and strong and painful all at once. And as the orienting things fell away, I continued to hear God's voice calling me to love, to be loved, to be the beloved. Our wrestling leads us back to relationship that is strong enough to hold our struggle even in our very disoriented places. And when the water calms, when things get still, God's faithfulness, your belovedness, and the invitation to relationship remain. 
So where do you wrestle? What do you wrestle for? You are loved. And you can love. This becoming is our life's work. And God is not frustrated at our struggle. I loved this quote by um, theologian Ellen Davis. She says, loving God asks us for integrity, that sense of integration, the wholeness. And claiming our integrity fully is for each of us the work of a lifetime. It takes however many years are given to us to give back to God a life wholly shaped by love. So being faithful is not about upholding, and it is not about defending, but it is about surrendering to love and letting it shape us over a lifetime. I think last time I gave you a breath prayer. (laughs) This time I think there's one too. To remember on the inhale that God welcomes our struggle, and on the exhale, God shapes me with love. That is your story. And in the final part of the text, Jesus turns it around and he asks the Pharisees a question. His question invites them, it invites us to discover how God is coming for us, how God is shaping us with love. And just because they didn't get it that day, I really don't think we should judge them. It's Tuesday of Holy Week, after all, and they are protecting a lot. We read this encounter from the other side of the cross and from the other side of the resurrection, but they weren't in the shadow of the cross. They didn't have an obvious way to recognize something that we see, which is that they were wrestling with God. They didn't know their struggle was with God that day. They thought it was with a guy who was a threat. And Jesus' question challenges their expectation of God by hinting at how the Messiah, their anticipated forever king, is actually coming to them and what that salvation might actually look like. And I really don't think his question was like um, trying to score the last point. I think it was a seed-planting question. I think he was putting in their hearts um, a concept, an idea, a question even, that was meant to take root in their lives over time as they looked back and wondered about him and what had happened. And I think when God asks us questions, it's not to trap us. It's usually to plant a seed, I think, in our hearts And if we can't answer it in the moment or we don't get it, that's okay. We can let it sit there. So how do we expect God to come? Well, let's start with their expectation. Um, Jesus' question for them was from Psalm 110. It's the first verse um, is his question, but they would have understood that the whole psalm was talking about the expectations around the Messiah. So Psalm 110, Jesus says, What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Like, that's the Sunday school answer. He said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, as Yahweh says to David's Lord, the Messiah, sit at Yahweh's right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's like a holy riddle. Like, what is black and white and red all over? Somebody? Thank you. (laughs) 
And he's giving them this riddle um, to open up a new paradigm. His main idea is that the Messiah is other than what they're expecting. Jesus's question um, is basically asking, how is the Messiah, how can he be David's son and also David's Lord? But the answer that they think is cut and dried to whose son is he, David, isn't actually the answer Jesus is accepting. So he's opening up this gap in meaning, and he's like, who else could it be? Who else is it? And Jesus then steps into that gap, that son of God, son of man gap, as he walks through the rest of Holy Week. So it's a little crack in a door of meaning for them, of who is, who is the Messiah. They think, chapter, or verse 1, that the Messiah is going to be the forever king upholding their identity as a nation and a son of David. That is national identity. They think he's going to be holy. Verse 4, a priest who's going to uphold their worship in the temple, which they also value. And they think he will be mighty, a warrior, conquering national enemies, protecting their identity and their community. Verse 5. But how does God come for them? He comes in unexpected ways. Jesus wants them to maybe begin to imagine, and certainly I think we can see here today from where we sit, that if the Messiah is son of God and son of David, God and human, then he is God with us. He doesn't just welcome our struggle, he's in our struggle. He gives a new meaning to being a human. It's not Jewish identity, it's human identity that he gives meaning to. If he's our perfect high priest, he actually renovates the temple system altogether. We don't need the physical geolocated place anymore because we have access permanently, everyone, to God. And finally, I think the best part of this has to do with the enemies that get conquered. Jesus' victory is over sin and death and evil and hell. These are our fundamental enemies that keep us from living into love. And thanks be to God, he conquered them. So this picture of Messiah isn't in the Pharisees' imagination. It kind of breaks their brain. They don't ask any more questions. But as we receive it, we can enter into the magnitude of God's love, and we can begin to love as we are loved. Our struggles can lead us to surrender because this Savior has set us free to love and to be loved. Because Jesus is our unexpected Messiah who fully engages our struggles with us and conquers our truest enemies, we can trust him with our wrestling as we do the work of our lives, which is to embrace our belovedness and live our call to love. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for engaging the questions. We thank you for asking 
good questions of us. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your salvation. We thank you also that you have given us a way to be loved and a good work in the world to do. And lastly, Jesus, I thank you that our work is never about upholding or protecting, but it is about surrendering. And so I pray that you would lead us as we go into this day and into this week and help us to remember who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.